Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing in our series on the book of Proverbs. Today's part 11. We're going to look today at the themes of money uh, and giving uh, and generosity. From a variety of different scripture verses, we're going to put on the overhead here from Proverbs 10, 11, uh, 13, 18, 30, so a variety of different verses throughout the book of Proverbs. The wages of the righteous are life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. But righteousness delivers from death. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. People curse those who hoard grain, but they pray God's blessings on those who are willing to sell. Trouble pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good things. An unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it's a wall too high to scale. Keep falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of the Lord. Amen. Uh, we're going to the overhead here. We're going to put. Uh, we're going to look at uh, today at, at three themes uh, about money and wealth. First of all, money has tremendous power. Uh, it exerts a huge power uh, in our life. Second, why does it do that? And three, how can we break the power of money in our lives? So first, money has great power over us. Uh, now, in and of itself, money's neither good nor bad. It's neutral. The problem is money never exists by itself. It always exists in someone's life. Uh, and there it, it magnifies and it amplifies. Hear me well. It magnifies and amplifies whatever happens to be in your heart. Let's look at Proverbs 10, verse 16. The wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. So here's a righteous person, and here's a wicked person. When money comes into the life of the righteous, it creates life. But when the same amount of money comes into the life of a wicked person, it creates death. What does that mean? What's this proverb telling us? We have to understand how the book of Proverbs uses the words righteous uh, and wicked. Uh, On the overhead here, uh, Bruce Walkie, who's a Hebrew scholar and expert on the book of Proverbs, he says this, in the book of Proverbs, the wicked uh, person is someone who disadvantages the community in order to advantage himself. And the righteous person in the book of Proverbs is someone who disadvantages himself in order to advantage and build up the community. And therefore, righteous people look at the money they make and they feel to some degree that that money belongs in part to the community. And not just to them. But the wicked person looks at their money, that the money they make, and they feel it belongs to them and to them only. The righteous, 
according to the book of Proverbs, means the righteousness means you see your money as belonging not just to you, but at least in part also to the community. Whereas the wicked see the money they make just as belonging to them alone, with no obligation to anyone else. And therefore, the more money that, that comes into the righteous person's life, the more it creates life. Why? Because the more money the righteous business owner, for example, makes, the more generous he is uh, with the salaries of his employees, uh, and the more generous he is uh, with the prices that he charges his customers. Because if the righteous business owner says, the money I'm making isn't just mine, but it belongs to the community, he's not going to try to make, make every last penny of profit out of that business, take it out of the business for, just for himself. But he's going to share the profits by paying his employees more, uh, giving better prices to his customers. By the way, we see this exact same principle in the Torah itself, uh, with the laws of gleaning, the laws of leaving the corners of your field for the poor. You see, if you charge the highest prices you possibly can, and you pay the lowest salaries you can get away, possibly get away with, in order to get the highest profits possible that you can, the book of Proverbs says you're wicked. Gordon Gecko, you know, from the movie Wall Street, he says greed is good, <laughs> but the book of Proverbs does not. Here's another example. A righteous person, he's considering buying a business. And a wicked person's considering buying the same business. The wicked person says, all I care about is maximizing profits. The righteous person, he also cares about profits. Uh, but in addition to that, he asks, does this business produce a product that helps the town? Does it, all, do, does it do business in a way that helps people, that helps society? The righteous person sees his or her money as also belonging, at least in part, to, to some degree, to the community. But the wicked person says it's mine and it's mine alone. And therefore, Proverbs 10, 16, I get on the overhead, says, the wages of the righteous creates life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. The earnings of the wicked, they're, they're like a little cul-de-sac, uh, a dead end, and they lead only to societal disintegration. And, and, and the spiritual disintegration of the one who selfishly hoards all the money just for himself. Do you see the power of money to make or break communities? The book of Proverbs sees the generous as, as being righteous and the selfish as wicked. But money not only has the power to make or break communities, it also has the power to make or break your soul. Because in these verses, we also see money has tremendous power to make you dishonest uh, and shallow and arrogant. Look at Proverbs 11, verse 1. The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. Do you know what dishonest scales means? You know, in the ancient world, uh, you went to a merchant to buy grain uh, and at a certain price per pound, let's say. Uh, so the store owner or the merchant, he'd take a weight and he'd put the weight on a scale. Let's say it's a one-pound weight. And then he'd start pouring out and measuring out grain on the other scale until those two scales balanced out. That's how you pay per pound. But what if the store owner secretly shaved off parts of the one-pound weight? So that although it says one pound, it actually weighs less than a pound. In that case, you'd be paying for a pound, but you're not getting a pound. That's dishonest. It's called dishonest scales. 
We do the same thing today, but with their own much more sophisticated ways. We, we usually do it today through accounting tricks. <laughs> There's all sorts of misleading and deceptive accounting practices to hide the truth uh, from customers, from investors, uh, from stakeholders. You know, Elon Musk accused Twitter uh, of, of this, do, of doing this, by inflating the price that he had to pay to buy Twitter. And this type of dishonesty in business is a constant temptation for people, especially because the more money you have, the more money you make, the more you can also make through dishonesty. The more money you make, the more often you'll be confronted with and presented with opportunities for little lies, little misdirections, uh, little deceptions that can make you a lot of money over time. And as you make more money, the temptations for dishonesty become stronger and stronger. And so you're tempted more and more to be corrupt. But notice the text doesn't say, doesn't just say the Lord doesn't like dishonest scales. No, what does the actual Hebrew say? The text says the Lord detests dishonest scales. Again, look at Proverbs 11, verse 1. The Lord detests dishonest scales. The Hebrew here actually means to abhor, or literally means it's an abomination. The Hebrew here is a, a tovah. Uh, you can't get any stronger language in Hebrew than that. It's an abomination. It's the same Hebrew word used in the Torah to talk about sexual immorality. So here we're being told the Lord regards greedy and dishonest business practices as every bit as, as heinous and abominable as sexual immorality. So first of all, money brings a temptation for dishonesty on the overhead. Secondly, it also has the power to make you selfish, uh, and shallow, uh, I'm sorry, to make you shallow and superficial. Proverbs 11, verse 4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The day of wrath, sometimes it means the final judgment day, but it doesn't always mean that. Uh, that's not what it's talking about here. It also is a Hebrew term for, for just a really bad day, <laughs> a day of sorrow, a day of grief. The day you get news your loved one is going to die or, or has died. The day you find out a good friend has betrayed you. Or the day you discover you have a debilitating disease. That's the day of wrath. A day of sorrow, a day of grief. And this proverb is saying that wealth is worthless on a day like that. On these terrible days, when the news is terrible, when the danger is awful, on a day of tremendous grief, your money is worthless. It will not help you face these tragedies. Only character, godly character, will help you face the day of wrath. And the implication here is that a lot of emphasis on making money will actually hollow out your character. So, so you're not ready for the day of wrath. For example, making money typically takes a lot of time. Uh, you, you, it's, it's grinding. It's all-consuming. It becomes your obsession. It takes up all your time it makes you incredibly busy, and you're so busy you can't develop character because you don't have the time to be alone with the Lord. You have very little time to be alone with yourself, so you don't even get to know who you are. You don't have time to develop friendships. These are all things that develop your character and help you get ready for the day of wrath. But when you spend all your time either making money or spending money, or both, <laughs> you're not ready for the day of wrath. You're not working on the part of you, or the part of your life that you need in order to endure that day. 
this preoccupation with wealth hollows out your character so you no longer have the poise or the endurance or the strength or the patience or the fearlessness that you need. If you spend all your time making money and spending money and thinking about that, thinking about uh, and, and, uh, and planning about money, all your decisions tend to become cost-benefit analysis decisions. You know, what's the return on investment, the ROI, the type of decisions? You know, what's the best return on the investment here? What's the cost-benefit? And all your thinking is in this mode. And because you're always doing this, you're analyzing everything in these economic terms, always thinking in these terms, over time becomes who you are, and it takes over the rest of your life, uh, and, and it takes over your relationships, how you spend your time, uh, your leisure time, your personal time, how you relate to your family. It hollows you out, and it makes you superficial. It does not make you a person of character. It makes you someone who's concerned mainly with optics and appearance uh, and externals, how you look from the outside. And you become primarily concerned with material things, not spiritual things, not character. And on that day of wrath, you are not ready. You're shallow. Uh, you're hollow. So on the overhead, number one, money can make you dishonest. Number two, it can make you superficial. Number three, money can make you arrogant. Look at Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only give me my daily bread. Otherwise, I might have too much to disown you and say, who is the Lord? Now, what famous biblical character said, who is the Lord? Pharaoh, remember? Moses told Pharaoh, the Lord said, let my people go. Exodus 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? That I should obey him and let Israel go. I don't know the Lord. And I won't let Israel go. It's very difficult to be successful in making money and at the same time to stay humble. Bernard of Clairvaux on the overhead, uh, he says this, to see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. It's extraordinarily difficult not to extrapolate your ability to make money into assuming an equal wisdom in all other parts of your life. Uh, Thus, it's extremely difficult to resist the temptation to say, well, because I'm smart at making money, that means I'm just smart. <laughs> I'm, therefore, I'm smart in all other areas of my life. And therefore, you won't take advice, you don't listen to other people's opinion or their judgment, and you develop this arrogance, this who is the Lord type of attitude. Uh, so in the overhead, uh, money has this enormous power to distort your life. An enormous power to make or break a community, to make or break a soul. And now number two on the overhead, why? Why does it have such power over us? Look at Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. But the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine that it's a wall too high for anyone to scale. Now, to understand this proverb, you have to understand the idea of the city in the ancient Near East. Cities are the only place you had security in the ancient world. Outside of the city, you had wild animals, you had wind and dust storms, you had robbers and, and marauders, you had vigilante justice, you had tribal warfare, you had foreign armies. 
And even though you know, a city could be sacked, it was still far safer than being outside, outside the city walls. It was only inside the city that stable human life could flourish. Outside the city, it was never stable. Inside the city, jurisprudence could develop, uh, and a market economy, uh, and division of labor, arts and sciences, culture could develop. And so to live inside the city, inside the city wall, inside the fortified tower, there was no greater security in ancient times, no greater status. People wanted to live in the cities. And so there was no greater metaphor for security and status and significance than the picture of a fortified city. Now, with this background, let's read again Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run into it, and they're safe. This is what this is is saying. Uh, On the overhead, when bad things happen, when the day of wrath happens, there's only one safe place, the name of the Lord. There's only one fortified city, only one tower to run into. Yes, amen. It's the name of the Lord. Now, note it doesn't say just say the Lord. It says the name of the Lord. Why? Because God's name in the Bible is a, it means uh, who he is. Uh, it's, a, it's his character. It's his attributes, his qualities. And so what this is saying is that when things are really unsafe in the world, when circumstances are threatening to overthrow you, when you're frightened and when you're scared, when you're worried and anxious, where do you run? Where do you go? Where's a safe place? And the overhead. And the answer is the name of the Lord. So if you're a believer, if you're a Yeshua follower here today, then there are four things you can count on about the Lord. Four aspects of his name that you can lean on. Number one, he's your father. Number two, he knows everything. Number three, he's in absolute control of all history. And number four, he loves you infinitely and eternally, and he'll do anything for your good. Now, if you leave any of these four out, you don't have a real God. You don't have the biblical God. But if you keep them together, you can run into it and be safe. You can rejoice in it. You you can grasp it. You can meditate on it. You can think on it. And you'll start to finally feel safe. It's the only thing in the world that will make you safe. And only when you intimately know Yeshua. In your heart. Can you say, if that's who he is, if that's who Yeshua is to me, and if that's who I am to him, then what in the world am I worried about? But unfortunately, that's not where we usually go, is it? Let's look at the next verse. Proverbs 18, 11. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it's a wall too high to scale. Now, by the author of Proverbs putting these two verses together, this is what we're being told. That of all the things in the world, of all the possible God substitutes, of all the things in the world you could look to, give you what only God can give you, of all the things that most seem to offer what only God can actually give you, it's money. Money is the most frequent God substitute that we turn to. We should be running to the Lord for our significance and security, but we often run to and turn to and rely on money instead. How so? On the overhead. Money offers to be not just money. 
It offers, it offers to be your God. It does this by giving you a false sense of security. That's what money does. And it gives you, secondly, an inflated identity. And thirdly, by fueling your idolatries. So first, it gives you a false security. Sometimes you hear about this ordinary-looking per, ordinary person who dies, uh, who's led an ordinary life. But after they die, it comes out, they were billionaires. <laughs> they had this, this enormous amount of money stashed away in, in savings and investments that, that nobody knew about. They didn't spend it on themselves. They didn't live in a big mansion. They didn't have expensive clothes and jewelry and cars. They also didn't give any of it away. They didn't start any charitable foundations. It was all socked away. Why? Because it was their fortified city. Their security. Money is so seductive. Money gives you the impression, if you have enough of me, you can spit, your, and spit in the face of the world. But that's just not true. Money says, if you have enough of me, then you'll be totally secure, totally safe. But that's not true. That's a lie. Money says, I'm your fortified city. Run to me. No one can scale my walls. But it's a lie. Now, this example of a person living modestly but, and not spending money, not giving it away, and then dying a billionaire, that's pretty unusual. But I want you to know that every person in this room, including me, is not as generous as they should be. Because money says, if you have enough of me, you're safe. And that's not true. That's a lie. Money is worthless on the day of wrath. Only the name of the Lord will help you on that day. And the day of wrath, money is useless. And the day, and the day of your death, money is useless. And the day your heart breaks, money is useless. Money cannot mend a broken heart. Money can't buy you love, as the old song says. <laughs> Only the Lord can heal your heart. Money can't help you face and deal with death. Only God can. There's no security in money. Betrayals, uh, reversals, the death of a loved one, fatal diseases. Those things happen whether you have money or not. Money promises security. Yes, of course. It, it claims to be a fortified city, but it lies. It cannot give you security. On the overhead, number two. Secondly, it inflates your identity. It was Genesis 3, the minute Adam and Eve sinned, uh, and lost the relationship with God, they deep down inside immediately knew there was something wrong with them. And as, and as their descendants, you and I, inheriting their fallen nature, we deep down inside also know there is something wrong with us. We experience shame and guilt. We don't want people to see us. Before the fall, you know, when we were with the Lord... We were naked and unashamed. We were fully known and fully loved. We had no problem with people seeing us. But after the fall, when we lost our relationship with God, we now need to carefully control, don't we, what people see about us. We now need fig leaves. So we're all radically insecure. We feel we need to prove ourselves. We're unsure of our worth and our value. We're all deep down struggling to prove ourselves to others 
that we're worth something, and to ourselves. And there's nothing in the world that claims to give you this sense of security and self-worth and significance the way that money does. And that's the reason why if you start to make money, you take credit for it. Your heart just goes after it. And what it does is this, and this is toxic. You may, you may be smart at making money, but your heart starts to say, I'm just smart in general. I'm just smarter than other people in general. You may have done better financially than some others, but your heart says, I am better than you. The reality is you've done better in one discrete area of your life, finances, but the pull of money is so great, your heart says, I am better. The fact is, these people are economically below me on the socioeconomic scale. And your heart continues to say, these people are just below me. Your heart says, I'm better, I'm smarter, I'm higher, I'm above others. Jeremiah 17.9, what does God say about your heart? The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart goes after money for security because it's our modern form of fig leaves. We use money to cover up our spiritual nakedness and shame. In our modern, secular, individualistic, Western society, we use money to give us our identity. In our heart of hearts, it's very important for us to think of, our, think of ourselves as someone who makes that kind of money, who lives in this kind of neighborhood and this kind of house, who drives this kind of car. And this self-centered, materialistic mindset, it's toxic. It's toxic to human community. It's toxic to your soul. So money provides a false security, and number two, a false identity. A security and an identity that only Yeshua can give you. Uh, and for many, many people, money becomes a false god. It does become your security and your identity. It becomes your fortified city well, on the overhead. But even when money is not your false god, here in this well, money will all, always tell you where your false gods are and where your false salvation is. So even if money's not your idol, it'll show you and tell you where your idols are. Because Yeshua says this in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Money will tell you where your treasure is, where your fortified city is. So let me tell on myself. Here's a personal example. It's an effort for me to spend money on my yard. Uh, I hate doing that because there's a never-ending sinkhole, right? Just money just goes in there and disappears. <laughs> uh, and so it takes me a lot of effort and a lot of pushing by Elizabeth to spend money in my yard. <laughs> but it takes me no effort at all to spend money on books. I love books. In fact, we've run out of room in our house for all my books. <laughs> if you've been to my house, you've seen this. <laughs> Why do I love books? Because I want to know the stuff that's in the books. So I'm always buying books on theology and religion and philosophy and culture. Even though I'll probably never read all of them. <laughs> Why? Because I want to learn the information and interact with the ideas that are presented uh, in the books. Now in theory, I know that my primary identity is who I am in Yeshua. That God loves me in Yeshua. 
That is and should be my value, my significance, my security, my identity. But to be honest, I confess, I also get some sense of significance by knowing things. Why? Because I'm a rabbi. <laughs> because my job is to teach and to preach. So on the one hand, I should, I, all I should need for my significance, the only thing I should need is to know that God loves me in Yeshua and that I'm his child. But I confess that I, 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 need, uh, I need to confess. I also get a sense of significance by people saying, oh, I learned so much from that drash, that sermon. Those insights helped me with my walk with the Lord. So I get significance out of what I know. I get no significance out of what my yard looks like. <laughs> so that was my confession. Let me ask you yours. Where do you get your significance? Where and where you spend your money will begin to tell you. Some of you love spending money on clothes and shoes. <laughs> it's, just, it's just as effortless for you to spend money on clothes as it is for me to spend money on books. Why? Because the approval you get for looking good is really important to you. It's effortless for you. It's not a burden at all. You joyfully do it. That's an effort not to go out and buy clothes and shoes <laughs> and handbags. <laughs> Otherwise, others of you will spend an enormous amount of money maybe to get a home in a high-status neighborhood. You know, in North Texas, the big high-status neighborhoods are Turtle Creek, uh, Highland Park, Preston Hollow, Kingsgate, Southlake. And the people in those neighborhoods, by the way, don't typically give a lot of money to the poor or to ministries as a percentage of their income. In fact, they give the least of all as a percentage. Here's the point. If the Lord were the only God you had... If Yeshua was the only savior you had. If you don't have all these other false sources of identity and significance and security. You would be much more generous on the overhead. Because where your treasure is, there is your heart. Meaning whatever has captured your heart, your treasure just flows into it effortlessly. See, if you want to know where, where you would, what you really worship... Ask yourself, what's easy for me to spend my money on? Because where your treasure is, there is your heart. And where your heart is, there is your treasure. And only, only if you see that money uh, is either for you a false god, or it shows you your false gods, will you then begin to see and understand the power that money has over you. It is enormous, unseen, unconscious power over you whether you admit it or not. Our problem isn't just that we're stingy or, or just that we spend too much on ourselves. Our problem isn't just that we're workaholics. But these outward things have spiritual roots. Because in our practical lives, all too often, God is not our only God. And Yeshua is not our only salvation. And as a result... Uh, in unseen, unconscious ways, money, it rules us, it shapes us, it distorts us, it takes hold of us. And the overhead, which brings us to our third and final point. How can we break the power of money in our life? To do this, you have to understand the key principle and, and bring that principle into your heart through the cross, the, 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 the sacrifice tree of Yeshua. We see this principle in Proverbs 11, verse 24. One person gives freely and gains even more, 
Another withholds unduly and comes to poverty. One person gives freely. The more you give away, the more you get. Another withholds unduly. The more you hold back, the more you come to poverty. Now, you have to understand this is actually in the book of Proverbs an agricultural metaphor. The more you sow and scatter your grain, the more of a harvest you'll reap. But the more you hoard your grain, the less you'll produce. The more you sow, the more you reap. The less you sow, the less you eat. It's an agricultural metaphor. And it's very important to understand this. Because many people wrongfully interpret uh, this to mean when the scriptures say you reap what you sow, what it's really saying is that you give your, the more you give your money away, the more rich you'll become. And if you hoard your money, uh, you'll become poor. And this has been perverted into the so-called prosperity gospel. Where a preacher will say, if you give your money to me in my ministry, you'll make more money. <laughs> but think about the agricultural nature of this metaphor. When you sow seed, and, you, and uh, do you later, at the, at the harvest time, do you reap more seed? No. What do you, what do you, you reap fruit. The fruit from that seed. Your seed does not come back to you in the form in which you sowed it and gave it away. In the same way, when the Bible talks about scattering your money, uh, becoming generous to the poor and to your local congregation uh, and to other ministries, when it talks about giving your money away, yes, it will bear fruit. Real riches will come to you, but not necessarily in the form in which you sowed it. You sow materially, it may come back to you spiritually. The prosperity gospel ignores this. Here's the principle. And it said, at first it will seem confusing, but here's the principle. Scattering gathers, and gathering scatters. Scattering your gifts, uh, your, your money, gathers. How? How so? When you scatter your gifts to the poor, you're, you're uniting society. Uh, if the wealthy hoard all their money, you end up with a divided society. Gathering, hoarding, scatters. But scattering gathers. So, for example, uh, if you give money to the Etzchayim Mercy Fund, whereby we help the poor, for example, you're helping to unite our community. You're helping to care for one another. You're unifying our covenant community together as one in Messiah, and you're showing, you're demonstrating love in action. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. James 2, 15. Suppose a brother or a sister is without food and clothes. If you say to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled. But you do nothing to meet their physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, without action, is dead. Scattering, given to others in need, gathers. But gathering and hoarding disintegrates. That's the principle. So now, how do you bring this general principle into your heart in a way that destroys the power of money over your soul? It's when you see that the cross is the ultimate example of that principle. 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, if you read the whole chapter, the context here is Paul 
trying to encourage the Corinthians to give generously to meet the needs of the poor Messianic Jews in Jerusalem during this terrible famine. The Macedonian believers didn't have much money, but they gave generously for this famine relief. And the Corinthian believers had a lot more money, but weren't giving nearly as much. So what does Paul do? He quotes from the Hebrew scriptures, and he tells them, you reap what you sow. If you hoard your money, you'll become spiritually poor. If you give generously, you become spiritually rich. You reap what you sow. But then he also says this, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. For though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Yeshua had all the riches of heaven. And he'd empty himself of his glory. He took on human flesh. He went to the cross and he died. So that through his spiritual poverty, you might become spiritually rich. This is the ultimate example, the ultimate principle of scattering to gather. It's the tree of death that became the tree of life, the cross. Why? Because on the cross, Yeshua was broken to pieces. He was scattered. Uh, They whipped him with 39 lashes. They they pulled the very flesh off of his body. Uh, They speared him. They nailed him. On the cross, he was scattered. Why? To gather you and me. The cross was the ultimate example of of wealth distribution, if you will. (laughs) Yeshua scattered his glory. Uh, His blood was scattered all over Jerusalem and all over Calvary. He gave away everything. He held nothing back. He was scattered in order to gather us. Why are we gathered together here at Eskheim? Why do we have each other? Why, Why do we love each other, hopefully? We've been gathered because Yeshua was scattered. He was destroyed on the cross. And when you see that, and when you see that Yeshua died for you, and when you see that, that everything else that, that becomes your heart's treasure will demand so much for, from you, it will demand that you work for it, that you sweat for it, but Yeshua is the only treasure who sacrificed for you. Every other treasure, uh, I want to make this much money, I want to have a mansion in Highland Park. (laughs) Any other treasure you set your heart on, it'll make you sacrifice. But Yeshua is the only treasure who sacrificed for you. He's the only treasure who could sacrifice for you. And when you see that, when you see him scattered in order to gather you, gather you to himself, uh, to the Father, and to each other, and when you embrace that in your heart, then you have real security. Uh, and real significance, and real identity. Not a fake, uh, idealistic identity uh, that you could put, that we often want to put in Judaism, or in Orthodoxy, or in Torah. Because we Messianics, we love to make idols uh, out of fleshly, outward compliance. But our real identity in the Lord himself, Yeshua, our bridegroom God, who is ultimately what the Torah is all about, by the way. Yeshua says in John 5.39, You search the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet these are the very scriptures that testify of me. Yeshua says the Torah is all about me. So if Yeshua is not your Lord and Savior, then by definition you are not Torah observant. That's Chaim. We need to find our security and our significance and our identity in Yeshua 
and Yeshua alone. In him alone. And the cross proved, the cross proves Yeshua will do anything for you. There, there is real security. And secondly, there's real significance. Why? Why significance? Because he values you so much, he was willing to die for you. And third and finally, he gives you the ultimate identity in him, filled with his spirit. Reborn from above, a new creation in Messiah Yeshua. He becomes your fortified city. He becomes your strong tower. And when you see the security and the significance and the identity that you have in him, suddenly money no longer becomes your security and your significance and your identity. It's just money. It loses its divine-like qualities. It loses its power to control you. And now you can be generous with it. Yeshua scattered himself in order to gather you. Now you go and do the same. Scatter your gifts. Serve others. Share Yeshua. Take the cross into the center of your life. And see how Yeshua gave his all for you. He, by the way, he didn't just give you a tithe of his blood, did he? <laughs> he gave you his all. And that frees you likewise to be generous with your resources as you serve and honor and worship him. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. For the music team to come on up. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, for these great words of wisdom from your book of Proverbs. These words today on the seductive power of money and wealth that we all too often we turn into a false god to provide us with security and significance and identity. But these are ultimately hollow and empty promises. Lord, they only feed our flesh. Uh, and, they, and they failed to be this fortified city and the strong tower that we're looking for. So Lord, thank you for showing us that money has the power to make us dishonest, to make us shallow, make us arrogant. It creates enormous pressures to cut corners. Uh, it warps our character uh, to become vain and superficial uh, and hollow and focus on analyzing everything in terms of economics, of cost-benefit. And it makes us arrogant into thinking we're better and we're smarter than others if we make more money than them. But the day of wrath, in that day, Lord, we know our only safety and security and status and significance is in you, Yeshua. Because you love us infinitely and eternally. And if we're truly denying ourselves and following you, you promise to work all things for our good. So Lord, help us today to repent of the many ways which we have made money our idol. Or how it shows us our other idols by showing us how we spend our money, what we spend it on. It shows us our treasure. And where our treasure is, so is our heart. Lord Yeshua, today we repent of these false treasures. We want you and you alone, Lord, to be our treasure. The treasure of our heart. For you and you alone to be our significance and our security and our identity. So, Lord Yeshua, capture my heart. I give it to you today. And in your name I pray this. Amen. Shabbat shalom.